Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. I am your host, Daniel Vincent. You can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com. Also, check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. We've started putting some more articles up there. I know the blog doesn't get as much attention as the podcast does, but got to prioritize your efforts. But there are a couple uh, newer articles up there that hopefully will be helpful. And I also want to remind everyone about our book that came out last year, The Infinite for Little Minds, A Doctrine of God for Children. I don't have a copy that I can hold up. I should have one, Lord willing, uh, next week that I can hold up and show. But you can find that on Amazon if you search The Infinite for Little Minds, a, a great way to not only support the podcast, support the ministry, but get the doctrine of God into the hands of families and to yourself to teach your family to introduce your children to the precious doctrine of God, to introduce them to basic creeds, confessions, and these concepts. So a great way to handle family worship and to introduce your children to these doctrines. So you can find that at Amazon.com. You search the infinite for little minds. So today we're going to be kind of having a little bit more of a devotional as a devotional episode, I guess. Uh, and I'd like to do these once in a while. I I didn't specifically plan this to be a devotional episode, but I guess the more I think about it, it's going to come out that way. But I wanted to look at a section or one of the chapters, so to speak, from the Valley of Vision. Valley of Vision published by Banner of Truth. It's been around for years. It's been a, a great tool, I think, for a lot of Christians. You know, having some of those uh, Puritan prayers. I think they're just prayers, but revolving around different topics. And one of the, I think it is the first one, or one of the first ones, is on the Trinity. And I think that it has some good lessons because it talks about different aspects of the Trinity and how those different aspects apply to us in salvation and strength and comfort. And I want to focus on the Trinity as a comfort for God's people. I don't know if we tend to think about the doctrine of the Trinity in those terms. I think we tend to abstract the doctrine of God from everything else. And I think that can be dangerous if we're not careful. It has real practical applications to us understanding who God is does bring and should, or I said should bring at least, tremendous comfort to the Christian in helping us to be able to rest in our God, not just any God, not just some bare deity floating around in the universe, but the God of Scripture who reveals himself in three persons. So I, I want to go through this a little bit as we take a look at... Um, the, the uh, Valley of Vision. So I'm going to read some, at least some of this here uh, from the Valley of Vision and stop and discuss and continue reading. Uh, so hopefully this will be helpful and beneficial to, uh, to our listeners. So starting off here, Heavenly Father, Blessed Son, Eternal Spirit, I adore Thee as one being, one essence, one God, and three distinct persons for bringing sinners to Thy knowledge and thy kingdom. So right off the bat, we see the worship 
of God, the worship of the Trinity, right? Each person of the Trinity is to be adored, and they are the one, the only ones deserving of divine worship. And to give that worship to any other would be to break God's commandments. And we see this very clearly, a very familiar passage, Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 through 6, that brings out the exclusive worship of God, that the worship that is to be given to God is not to be given to any other creature. And to do that is to violate this second commandment. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So God has issued that he is to be worshipped a certain way, and we're not to worship him with idols. We're not to worship him with by means of images, and we're certainly not to make images of God. And we can make images of God in different ways, not just the carving of an image, but it can be making a God in our own minds. It can be making a God in our own imaginations. We conceive God in a way that is not consistent with Scripture. And so when we do that, we find ourselves going into all of these you know, different crowded spaces that are that are not biblical and that we find ourselves in that it just is not consistent with the scriptures. So if we do not worship the God of scripture, if we conceive of a different God than what the scriptures reveal, we are committing idolatry. Let's be very clear about that, right? And that I think that's very relevant to the discussion that's floating around in reform circles now about the doctrine of God. That it's not a secondary matter that we can't be walking around pretending like this is some sort of Christian liberty issue or whatever the case might be, something secondary that we can just disagree on and, and fellowship together. No, <laughs> we can't we can't be uh, thinking of the doctrine of God in those categories. It's something that we have to be in agreement on. Now, that doesn't mean that people aren't going to make mistakes or misspeak or, you know, fall into error and, and come back. But what I am saying is that it's not a secondary matter. It's not something we can compromise on. Okay. It is idolatry to come up with a different God than the God of Scripture, either in your mind, your heart, in an in a physical image, whatever the case might be. We are to worship the God that has revealed himself in Scripture, okay? And we also know that God created and sustains all things, so the Trinity is not only the author of us ontologically as the creator, okay? But they are the author of salvation, right? All things come from God, Romans eleven thirty six, And as such, he is the only one worthy of worship, okay? The, all three persons of the Trinity are the only ones worthy of divine worship. And to make anything else of the highest good that we is uh, that we live for is sin. You have to be very, very careful, right? And this is why you see, as it relates to the doctrine of sin in the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 16, paragraph 7, and it talks about 
the works done by unregenerate men. Works done by unregenerate men, although for the matter of them, they may be things which God commands, and of good use both to themselves and to others, yet because they proceed not from a heart purified by faith, nor are done in a right manner according to the word, nor to a right end, the glory of God, they are therefore sinful and cannot please God. And there's a little bit more that they say, but that's the essence of it. It's not done in the right manner. They're not doing these things of the glory of God. They're doing it solely for themselves, solely for earthly means, making the greatest good that which is not God. And even though those things might be outwardly conforming to God's law in terms of the letter, they're not obeying it uh, in terms of how they're supposed to be obeying it, right? And so it's therefore not pleasing to God, okay? So that means we need to be worshiping God rightly. If we're, if we're worshiping something else in a way that we should be worshiping God, we're living in sin, okay? So, I mean, there's so much we could pull out just of those, you know, two those four or five lines from the opening of the Valley of Vision that we, I mean, we could spend an entire episode on that. All right, moving on here. O Father, thou hast loved me and sent Jesus to redeem me. O Jesus, thou hast loved me and assumed my nature. So now we're starting to see each person of the Godhead being involved in our salvation and the love that the Father and Christ has for his people. We go on here and say, Shed, uh, I'll go back a little bit. O Jesus, thou hast loved me and assumed my nature. Shed thine own blood to wash away my sins, righteousness to cover my unworthiness. So even just obviously from our Lord Jesus Christ, he brings us tremendous comfort in our salvation. He is our resting place when it comes to our standing before God. Without Jesus Christ, there is no hope of salvation. There's no true rest, ultimately speaking, from eternity. Nothing but damnation. Christ is our true resting place from a salvation perspective. His blood takes away sins and actually dealt with sin. This wasn't just a sacrifice that could be done again and again, right? It's a sacrifice that works for all sins, all the sins, of all God's people, takes care of it once and for all, done, end of story, move on. And this work is not isolated. It's not done in a vacuum, right? The one will of the divine essence desired this to be so. It didn't just happen that we were saved. This was God's plan from all eternity that this would occur. That God's people would be saved and seeking their good and for God's glory ultimately. And what this should do is it should lead us to worship God and obey God out of thankfulness for giving us his son and for the precious blood of Jesus Christ. There's tremendous comfort just in that. And that's probably the one that people focus on the most because it is so important and it is precious, but it has everything to do with our rest and our comfort in the Trinity because the second person of the Trinity accomplished this work for us in saving us. And we rest in that for our eternal salvation. Now, looking at the Holy Spirit, we see that the Valley Vision devotional shifts a little bit. O Holy Spirit, thou hast loved me and entered my heart, implanted their eternal life, revealed to me the glories of Jesus. 
So the Spirit renews us, regenerates us. We see this uh, if we look at Titus 3, makes us born again. John chapter 3 as well. Must be born from above in order to see God, right? The Holy Spirit provides us the fruits needed to walk in a way that is pleasing to God. The fruit we are given is nothing other than the fruit of the Spirit. It's, a, it's God working in us by His Spirit. And these evidences in our lives are really the evidence that God is in us, that we are saved, that justify us, as James chapter 2 says, right? And so what that means is, the obvious implication of that is, without fruit, there's no fruit, there is no salvation. And we should not deceive ourselves. So we have to be very careful about that. This, uh, And we look at Galatians 5, we'll look at Galatians 5, 16 through 23. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So this is the Spirit's work within us, bringing out these fruits that evidence God working in us, as opposed to the pagan lifestyle of wickedness, debauchery, disobedience, lust, God works the opposite qualities in us. And that is the fruit of God's spirit working in us. So that evidences that we are truly God's. Obedience is the surest sign that the spirit is at work within you. Okay? We can gain assurance from our obedience, assurance in as much as it reveals that we are, in fact, Christ's. If there is no obedience, there's no work of the Spirit, period. If there's no fruit, you're not a Christian. And this is not a bare obedience to the law of God, but an obedience that flows from faith. There is no way a, a pagan can please God outside of having faith, Hebrews eleven six. So if, if one claimed to follow the true Christ and believes his gospel and exhibits fruits, although they may be imperfect and they will be imperfect, there's no reason to think that they aren't saved. If this is how they live, they claim to follow the true Christ, there's all the evidences there, then we have every reason to believe that they are, in fact, a child of God. We can measure ourselves against the scriptures. It is okay to gain assurance from our obedience. That doesn't mean that we rest in our obedience as our standing before God, or we feel like we're good enough in order to be made acceptable before God. No, this is in terms of our sanctification, in terms of our evidences that prove our faith. And the scriptures talk about this. We can see this first John chapter two, where it says, if if someone says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. Right? You can see that person by their works. It shows the evidence of their faith, right? Whether they have it or not. James chapter 2, 14 through 17. What does it profit, my brother? And if someone says 
He has faith but does not have works. Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things that are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So this is how we are justified, not in a legal sense, but in a subjective sense as it relates to our obedience post-justification. It's very important. This is a common verse that's used by Roman Catholics to allegedly show that there is no such thing as being justified by faith alone in terms of a legal stance, as Paul talks about in Romans chapters 3, 4, and 5. But what James is talking about here is justification as it relates to infused righteousness post-justification in terms of a legal declaration. Very, very important to distinguish those two things. So what I'm really talking about here is the vindication of oneself in relation to their claim of having saving faith. Okay? Well, the Spirit, if we are saved, the Holy Spirit saves us, just born again, brings about that fruit, there will be evidence there. If there's no evidence, there's no salvation. That means the Spirit is not working within you. And if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you're not His, Romans chapter 8. Okay? And what all these things tell us, too, is that the Holy Spirit is actually a divine person. We know that God's essence isn't some static being, but a most living being, a most pure act, right? Or as Francis Chanel called it, vital, right? But not only that, but in this divine essence, of course, there are three persons. They're nothing but the divine essence under different relations. And we see these personal attributes given in Scripture uh, to the Holy Spirit's person, and because of that, we can rightly say he is a person, uh, even if there is a ontological fundamentally different than uh, human persons. All right, moving on here in the discussion here or from Valley Vision. Three persons and one God, I bless and praise thee for love so unmerited, so unspeakable, so wondrous, so mighty to save the lost and raise them for glory and raise them for glory. Now we see here that all three persons of the Godhead are involved in saving the lost. That's very clear from this confession in the Valley of Vision. Now what this speaks to here is a doctrine called inseparable operations that all works of God outside that we see as perceive as separate right that terminate in separate things are really one act as it relates to the divine essence all three persons are involved in our salvation there's no distinct actions to each person with works that are outside of himself each one of those persons plays a part in bringing his people home and i'm saying part very imprecisely not that each person of the godhead comprises the godhead or is complex each person is a part that makes up the whole that's not what i'm saying but they are all involved in bringing us home it's all one act there's no distinct actions to each person of the godhead for outside acts it's all one act 
Anything God does outwardly, he does indivisible. This is because action is a property of nature, right? Absolutely speaking. If a body or essence does something, it necessarily involves the nature itself. You have the will from a human perspective, the will, the arms, legs, eyes, whatever the case is, the nature of the, of the thing is involved in doing the action. And since God is all that he is, there are no divisible parts in God. Therefore, each person of the Trinity, if each person of the Trinity were to act with their own ad extra or outside works, they would be their own being. And since biblical theology requires us to divine God as simple, we must reject real divisible ad extra works in God according to each person. Okay, that's very that's very clear. Okay, now scripture will ascribe certain works to each person while maintaining that God is, is really simple. So by good and necessary consequence of what we know about the supposed to God, we cannot say that each person of the Trinity does their own distinct outward works. That would divide the Godhead. Okay, so that's very important to keep in mind as, as we're looking at this. So when we're talking about the Trinity doing outside works, add extra works together, we don't mean a collective whole, as if they're working together as three separate agents with bringing together their individual works. It's one essence, one act of those three persons that brings about whatever happens in creation. Okay. You have to be precise with that language. It's a difficult doctrine. Uh, this book here by Adonis Vidu, highly recommend it. The same God who works all things, inseparable operations in, Trinity, in Trinitarian theology. It's a heady book, not an easy read, but if you want a deep dive into this doctrine of inseparable operations, this is where you want to go. Okay. Uh, I wouldn't recommend it for people who are just starting off in looking at the doctrine of God. I think that it's going to, there's going to be terminology and concepts there that are going to be go over your head unless you have a basic understanding of theology proper, classical theism. But this is an excellent resource that helps with uh, those difficult issues. All right, moving on here. O oh, Father, I thank thee that in fullness of grace thou hast given me to Jesus to be his sheep jewel portion. O oh, Jesus, I thank thee that in fullness of grace thou hast accepted, espoused, bound me. O oh, Holy Spirit, I thank thee that in fullness of grace thou hast exhibited Jesus as my salvation and planted faith within me. That last phrase there, implanted faith within me, you can find this principle in Philippians 1.29. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So it's been granted to us that we believe. Granted. It's a gift that's been given to us. That faith has been implanted within us. It's not something that comes from within us inherently. We can't conjure it up. We can't make it out of thin air. It has to be given to us by an outside party because we do not do anything good faith is a good work it's something that must be given to us and because of that it has to be implanted in us it has to be given to us granted to us so that we cannot claim that we save ourselves okay to be very careful about that so faith while being a good work really is a means to an end it's a means to receiving what's already been done in jesus christ it's not counted to us in terms of our salvation. 
Okay, very important. And then as we start to close out here, we go on. Subdued my stubborn heart, made me one with him forever. O Father, thou art enthroned to hear my prayers. O Jesus, thy hand is outstretched to take my petitions. O Holy Spirit, thou art willing to help my infirmities, to show me my need, to supply words, to pray within me, to strengthen me that I faint not in supplication. O triune God, who commandeth the universe, thou hast commanded me to ask for those things that concern thy kingdom and my soul. Let me live and pray as one baptized into the threefold name. Lots of good stuff here. And you can you can just hear this person's heart just outpouring to God. But also finding tremendous comfort that even in those practical applications, like it says here, thou hast commanded me to ask for those things that concern thy kingdom and my soul. So this person is resting in God, resting in his word, resting in his commandments, and doing so in a humble obedience. It isn't just asking God for something just to check the box, or asking God for something as if he's some sort of vending machine, but asking God to do those things that he has commanded, do, and praying to God, in a humble obedience, things that concern thy kingdom and my soul. And I, I know for me that challenges me. When I pray, I need to pray with that humility that we come to God as an obedient servant. Yes, as his child. Yes, as an adopted child of God, but also doing so in a way that glorifies him and brings honor to his name. But there's tremendous rest here. We have a God who is immutable, who doesn't change, who is not bound by anything outside of himself. He doesn't react to things that happen as if he didn't see them. He's not moved by his creation. He's perfect and complete in himself. We can rest in that and take great comfort in that as Christians. God will not be swayed by wicked men. God will not be swayed by the ebbs and flows of the world. He remains, yet we change, right? And so we can take great comfort that God will do what he says. Take great comfort that he will sustain us, no matter what happens in this world, because our God, our triune God, is who he is. And we can take great comfort in that. The, the doctrine of God, while it might have a lot of heady things that come with it, a lot of philosophical concepts that we derive from Good and, necessary, good and necessary consequence of Scripture, a lot of difficult principles that have to be wrestled with. But at the end of the day, it does have real practical application because it has real application to the person in the pew. It's not just something for the academics or the scholastics. It's something that has real application to us as Christians, that we can rest in this God and trust him fully. There's no scintilla of doubt that we can have that God will do what he says because of who he is. His very nature demands it, really. So, Christian, rest in God. Rest in our triune God for who he is. Don't rest in men. Don't rest in creatures. Trust God. Rest in his word, and he will do what he says. And we can take tremendous uh, comfort in that. 
Well, that's all I have for today. I hope that was a blessing to you and and brings comfort to your soul as you continue to rest in our Lord, that these things that we learn, I, I think week to week in our in biblical churches have real practical application to us as it relates to what the Bible teaches about God. So I hope this has been helpful. There will uh, just kind of a heads up. There will be no episode next week. Uh, I'm teaching at my church on the 4th of February, and I need the time to be able to focus on preparing for that. So I will not be doing an episode next Saturday. However, on February 6th, Dr. James Dolezal will be on the show, and we will be talking about liberty of conscience, religious toleration, as it relates to John Owen. So hopefully that will be a very beneficial episode. You'll tune in and please ask your questions. This is a live broadcast. I do these live uh, on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. If you're listening, you can comment and your question will be put on my feed here and I can see it. And you can uh, ask your questions and, and you know we can look at answering them. But feel free to bring in the comments, bring in the questions, and we can uh, discuss these things with Dr. Dolzo. And hopefully that will be very beneficial to you as well. Well, with that, everyone, have a great weekend and have a great Lord's Day tomorrow. And we'll see you on the 6th. Take care.